What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Come on, I think we can do better than that. How are we doing this morning? Man, the kids got me pumped. Didn't they get you pumped? Man, it is it is an honor and joy to be here at Bow Down Church. Um, I, I just I just want to honor a few people. I want to honor Pastor Chris there in the back. Can we give it up for Pastor Chris? I also want to honor uh, Mr. Bill Hobbs. Can we give it up for Mr. Bill Hobbs? And, and, and the rest of the Urban Youth Impact staff, uh, man. Yeah, let's give it up. You're here and, and you, you're part of Urban Youth. I honor you. Um, so a little bit about myself. So I actually worked for Urban Youth Impact when I was about 18 or 19 years old, uh, right before I went off to college. Um, I really started ministry in many ways uh, through Urban Youth Impact. So I honor um, Urban Youth Impact and Pastor Chris, Mr. Bill Hobbs, and, and the rest of the staff. I also honor you um, knowing that what has happened here, uh, Bow Down being planted out of Urban youth is what we hope to see uh, on the south side. And if you ever want to come and get a cafecito with me, that's coffee, um, you come come see me. We'll, we'll, we'll get you right on the south side. I also want to honor uh, my, my, my mom's in the building too. Mommy, si puedes levantar la mano. My grandma's always is, is also in the back. She made an appearance. Uh, my grandma told me she's not here for me. She's here for actually uh, my, my daughter. So uh, she, 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 she let that known early. She doesn't know what I'm saying right now because she only speaks Spanish, but she knows that I love her. And then my wife is in the back right next to her. And, uh, you know, for us, it's been a journey for my wife and I. And this week, uh, we, were, we were thinking about um, the different transitions we've gone through as a married couple, especially now having a newborn baby grandma girl dad now. So I'm, I'm a little tender now, or more tender. That's what my family tells me. And as I think about our relationship, as we were reminiscing on, on the good times, I, I think about the Trinity Evangelical Seminary Library. It was at that library where I saw this brown skin, a mocha sister, studying her Bible. Actually, she was studying Hebrew. She had me at Hebrew studying Hebrew. And it was there where I met this girl, this beautiful girl who loved Jesus, and I introduced myself to her, and we became friends. And then as we became friends, then we started dating. And as we began to date, we started being that annoying couple, I'm not going to lie. And if we could get the time going, because I don't want to go over. I'm a a brown preacher. I don't want to prolong this. Thank you. And so as, as we got to become a couple, we were that annoying couple that would dress the same everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? We would finish each other's sentences. You know, we would always be like super chipper around one another. And then I got on one knee. We got engaged. We ended up getting married. And then it was like day two. I came to a realization. It wasn't like a super big revelation or anything like that, but the revelation was this. I realized, man, I'm a selfish dude. Can I just be honest here? Can I be honest at Bow Down? I'm a selfish dude, and let me tell you why. I thought I was pretty good. I was, you know, um, in ministry, doing my thing. But, man, it was hard for me to share my money. 
It was hard for me to share space. It was hard for me to share time all the time to consider another person. Now, we did that when we were dating, right, and it was all good. But when we got married, it was just another level. And I had to just learn how to be one with my wife. But God revealed to me that it was going to take me dealing with myself. In other words, it was going to take me dealing with my own greed. And as I thought about that, I thought about how it is oftentimes when we live in community as a church. God has called the church to be one. God has called us not only to be one, but to express that oneness by sharing what we have with one another. But how many of you know that it's easy to be greedy even with the household of faith? And that's a problem. And it's a problem, family, because greed destroys the church. Greed destroys relationships. So the question on the floor today is, how do we overcome greed? We're all greedy to one degree or another. All of us are guilty. And today, we're going to be looking at this episode from Ruth chapter 2. If you could turn in your Bible or your devices, Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And as I said, I'm a Latino preacher, grew up in a Latino immigrant church, and we talk back. And so if you talk back to me, it's going to help me preach better and faster. So if you want to get to lunch, you can stand up, raise your hand. You can say amen, say I got it. All right? You could do all of that. It won't throw me off. Trust me. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to read God's word says this. It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she, that's Ruth, sat down beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some Leftover. Somebody say leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she, that's Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an afar of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. God bless the reading of his word. Our text today will give us a blueprint for how to overcome greed. And more specifically, we're going to learn three ways that we can overcome greed. And the first way that we overcome is by extending hospitality with the resources that we have. And we see this in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come here, and eat some bread, dip your morsel, and she sat down, and then the text says that she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now, this was in a setting that was agricultural. It was an agricultural setting, and if you know anything about agricultural work, 
It's hard work. They had three meals like we did. In the morning, they had a light breakfast. And at lunchtime, they had a light lunch. And then their biggest meal was in evenings. In other words, lunchtime was just meant to get you through. But Boaz, check this out. Don't miss it. He gives Ruth above and beyond what she really needed to get through. Ruth could have taken advantage of that situation and eat all that food for herself, but instead the text says she was satisfied and then she left some over. She had leftovers and she saved it is what we see. And this is what I want you to understand about this text, that sharing a meal in ancient times was an expression of hospitality. Interestingly, this is what I want you to understand. Boaz not only belonged to Israel, he had real estate. Oh, yeah, he was that dude. He, he was a boss and he had real estate. Furthermore, his land was fruitful. And in this text, he invites a poor immigrant and widowed woman who represented one of Israel's sworn enemies, the Moabites, to his table to eat. In other words, Boaz used his position, his power, and his produce to benefit someone who was worlds apart from him. Mm. I imagine that most of us in this room have a place to stay. Most of us have food to eat. Most of us have jobs or a purpose in this world. And what God wants us to do as a church is to extend those things to other people. And I want to encourage you today to extend those things to people who are not like you. That's what this text is calling us to do. But see, check this out. God doesn't just want us to, to make people dependent on us, though. Nor do the most vulnerable people want to be dependent on us. In this text, we also see this is the second thing that God calls us to use our privileges to create opportunities for others, especially the disadvantaged. Boaz, this is what he does. He opens an opportunity for Ruth out of obedience to God's word. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, Boaz... And in parentheses, I'm going to say the boss man, the dude who had it going on, fellas. He instructed his young men, the text says, or his supervisors saying, let her glean or collect crops even among the sheaves. Sheaves were these bundles of grain plants. And he says, do not reproach her. And he, he almost says it again. He says, give her the bundles. And do not rebuke her. In other words, let her get above and beyond what she normally would have access to. So Boaz providing for Ruth and Naomi an opportunity. Now what's remarkable about this is that Boaz didn't have a dream like Joseph. Boaz didn't have a burning bush like Moses. Boaz didn't have fire come from heaven on earth like Elijah. That's not what happened to Boaz. The text says that he just let her glean above and beyond. 
And it was on the basis of the word. Why do I say that? Because in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, if you were to read that, it says that people who had land, they were supposed to leave the edges of their field or the extra crops for the poor and the foreigner. But here, Boaz is going above and beyond what he even had to do to give this poor immigrant girl an opportunity. And it wasn't because of a special revelation. It was out of obedience to God's word. So what I'm trying to tell you today is that Boaz understood God's heart for the poor, the foreigner, the persecuted, and the lost, the fatherless. And today in our city, there are people all over the place, even in this room, who fit those categories. And God wants us to use our privileges to create opportunities for our brothers and sisters and those who have yet to find Jesus to elevate themselves. So the question on the floor is, how are you creating opportunity? You don't need to own a business. You don't need to have a big platform to create opportunities for other people. Now, Ruth, check this out. A woman who gained access to opportunity shows us what we should do with the fruit of our work. This is our third way to overcome greed. God calls us to work hard and share our earnings. Look at verse 17 in the beginning. It says, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Farmers in that day, they would wake up at the crack of dawn or before dawn, before sunrise, to collect a harvest. And the reason why was because in Israel, this was desert land, and it got really, really hot. So they wanted to, to take advantage, aprovechar, and get their, their food or get to their work so that they wouldn't be working in that hot sun so that they could preserve their energy. So what this text implies is that Ruth was working day and night for this opportunity or with this opportunity. And we know this because she produced results. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. In the footnotes of your Bible, if you were to read that verse Most of our Bibles say that was about 23 or 22 liters, or in other words, 11 and a half soda bottles. And this was a lot of grain. And why was this important? Because grain was the material substance that created bread. Hmm. So imagine how much this blessed this poor family. But see, Ruth didn't just hoard what she made. The text in verse 18, look at it with me. It says, she took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she had gleaned, and she brought it out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. You see that? In essence, Ruth brought sustenance to a dire situation. How did she do that? By sharing the fruit of her labor. You know, many times in the United States of America, they teach us to leave a legacy for your family financially. And we should do that. 
we, we, we prepare for retirement, financially speaking. But oftentimes, one of the things that we forget is how our resources can be used for the kingdom for the long haul, not just our own personal bank accounts. Sometimes we're too concerned with our retirement over the church being good for the long haul. And what this text is telling us to do is to make that money, make it, but reorient everything you have around being generous. Not just for your family, your biological family, but also for the family of God. God takes us from scarcity to generosity. That's what God does. And that's what God is calling us to do. So those are the three ways. To overcome greed. Extend hospitality. Create opportunity. Work hard and share your earnings. But if I'm honest with you, you might just listen to that and say, what difference does that make? In other words, why would I even want to do that? I mean, this is my stuff. I earned it. I worked hard. Why would I want to do that? Valid question. What difference does it make? Check this out. At the end of the book of Ruth, we find that Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a child. And that child has another child. And what we see is that that simple act preserved a family lineage from which Jesus Christ would come from. Now check this out. Ruth and Boaz weren't married at this point in the story. This was Boaz, you know, making a move. But he knew her situation, fellas. I'm just saying. That's a side note. But, but check this out. Boaz took a step toward Ruth through his generosity, and it changed a lineage to the point where it would bring the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. Some of y'all don't hear me. Because if this was my mama's church, people would have been on their feet at this moment. Check this out. Jesus Christ, being God, became a human and was born in Bethlehem, the very place where this took place. And, and Jesus lived a sinless life. See, Jesus, when, when he came from heaven to earth, he came to a manger. He was born in the hood. And, and, and nobody had space for Jesus. But check this out. Somebody was hospitable to Jesus' biological parents, gave him a manger. He was born. Then he grew up sinless. And then he died for sinners at the end of his life. And on the third day, he resurrected from the grave. And when he resurrected from the grave, family, what he gave us is the opportunity to have eternal life with God the Father forever. In other words, what I'm telling you is that through the generosity of Jesus, we have been able to become part of God's family. So what can we learn? From this story is that generosity was the first step that led to Jesus. 
And now Jesus offers reconciliation to every family on the earth. These things bring reconciliation. They're a first step. In other words, this is what I want you to get out of this story. Generosity is a platform for reconciliation. You might be here today and you have a struggling marriage. Maybe your spouse just doesn't want to hear it no more. Generosity is a platform for reconciliation. And maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with your roommate. Generosity is a step toward reconciliation. Hey, check this out. Our city is divided along political lines. I mean, there's all kinds of division. Check this out. Generosity toward your enemy is your first step toward reconciliation. It starts with us. So the question on the floor is, will we be generous? And if we are, it could lead people to Jesus and it could preserve people in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this word. Your word, Lord, is sharp, God. It cuts to the heart. We pray that we would obey your word, Lord, because it's what's best for our lives. In Christ's name. Woo. All right. <laughs> Bruh. Y'all must have got him going, man. He pulling out the Spanish and everything, bro. He was, he was heated up. Hey, man. Good job, Jeremy. I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that, man. Maybe we just take a quick lunch break. I don't know. That's tough. I'm just kidding. Uh, I know that it can be uh, kind of weird to having two messages kind of in one morning. So take a deep breath real quick. You know, whatever you got to do. If you got to stand up and stretch for a second, whatever. Whatever you got to do. And then we're going to shift, uh, shift right into it. But Jeremy, thank you, man. Great, great word. Um, man, um, I have to admit before, um, before doing this uh, Sunday mornings in Ruth, I hadn't really studied Ruth a whole lot. I've read the book of Ruth, but just as we continue to dig into it and to kind of see what's there, it's kind of like Jeremy said, it's not a burning bush, it's not a part the Red Sea, it's not one of those stories necessarily that you remember if you grew up in church through Sunday school, but as you start to open this story up, there's just a beauty about it, and there's a beauty about it because it's a beauty of obedience, and that's what we're going to move into right now as we finish up this second chapter of Ruth is that beauty of obedience and watching when people obey God's word, what comes out of that. So we're going to read uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. And it says this, it says, and her mother-in-law said to her, now, now understanding that Ruth has just come back from the fields and she's got a lot of stuff with her. And so Naomi is like, dang, girl, you worked today, right? That's what Jeremy just talked about. Ruth went in the field. She worked it, and she brought home a lot. And it's understanding that Naomi is seeing this now of all the stuff that she's bringing back and realizing that this isn't really normal, right? So what's going on? And that's when we break into it. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Man, where did you, man, it looks like you had a good day out there. What, what's going on? Said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, 
the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, to her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, the young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And so as we read through this story, we see obedience. We see obedience from Boaz. We see obedience from Naomi. And we see obedience from Ruth. And so the first point that I want to make is this, is that obedience is our part in God's plan. All right, let me say that again. Obedience is our part in God's plan. God blessed Ruth, right, with the situation and the circumstances, but let it be known, Scripture says it multiple times, that Ruth worked the field late until evening. And sometimes we want God to work and we want his plan to work out in our lives, but we aren't willing to step into it and do the work that's necessary. We just want God to bless us and give us this and give us that, and we're not really willing to step into that and do the work that needs to be done. Obedience is our part in God's plan. Ruth was obedient not only to Naomi, but to Boaz. Boaz instructed her. I want you to stay with this group, with this servants. I want you to glean in this field. I don't want you to go anywhere else. I want you to stay in this area. And then what does Naomi do? She, she reaffirms that. Yes, what he says is good. Do exactly what he says. And she was obedient. John 14, 15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when we're obedient to God, it shows our love for him. So the opposite has to be true, correct? If we're disobedient to God, then what does that show? That shows a lack of love for God. When we obey God's commands, we show him our love. Now, obedience isn't always easy. Can we agree to that? When God calls us to do something, it's not always easy. It's not always what we want to do, but it's important. So some of y'all may know I worked Urban Youth 2004 to 2007. Then my family, we moved back to Maryland where I'm from. Uh, and I was a youth pastor there right outside of D.C. Actually, I have one of my former students here this morning with us uh, from Maryland. Um, but in 2014, God said, you know what, it's time to move again. Now, those of you who don't know, me and my wife will celebrate 18 years in 2022. We've moved almost that many times. <laughs> all right? Not fun. All right? The only good thing about that many moves is you don't collect as much junk. Because uh, when you have to move it over and over and over again, you really don't have to. But that's beside the point. 2014, God said it was time to move. Now, in 2007, when I moved from here to Maryland, it was specific. Right? I knew I was going back to my home church. I knew the position I was going to and knew that God was leading me there. But in 2014, God said, hey, your time is up here in Maryland. It's time to move. How many of you have ever had God call you to something and not give you all the details? Right? How dare God do something like that, right? How are you going to call me to something and not give me all the details? How do you not plan out the whole thing, right? 
Any of y'all watch Home Alone? You know when he plans out the whole strategy for how he's going to get the robbers and he's got, like, God didn't give me that plan. He said it was time to go. Okay, God, I, I hear you. It's time to go, but where? What? What am I supposed to do? Nothing. Silence. Okay. So for the next year, me and my wife had to just pray through, what does this mean? God, you're not calling me somewhere specific. You're not telling me to go specifically to this place. You're just saying it's time to go. And so we had to pray through that. Where would we, well, God, if you're not giving me where I'm supposed to go, where would we want to live? What are some options, right? And so that whole year, we were just wrestling back and forth trying to figure this out. And God is slowly just giving us those little breadcrumbs along the way to follow, right? Because he doesn't give us the whole picture, but he gives us the next step exactly when we need the next step. We didn't settle on a house till two weeks before we moved. Now, we had to be out of our house. My job knew I was leaving. I got two kids with me, and I had no idea a month before we're supposed to move where I'm going. But God worked it out. He didn't give it to me when I wanted it, but he gave it to me exactly when we needed it. The first time we saw the house was when we pulled up in the U-Haul in a city called Conyers, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. That's all we knew. But you know what? Moving to Georgia put us in a position, in a place, in a church where both of my kids got saved, and I was able to baptize both of them. Amen. Right? Obedience. Not because of who I am, but just because I was obedient. That's what God can do, and that's what this story continues to show us, obedience. The second point that I want to make is obedience. Obedience allows us to see God's plan unfold. As we step into obedience, right, God unveils another and another. But you know what too often that we do? Instead of that, we don't see what's in front of us. Instead of stepping into the unknown, we step back. Oh, God, that can't be what you're saying. That can't be what you're doing, right? You know how many people told me I was crazy for, for moving and not knowing where I was going, right? People, you understand, people around you, they don't, they don't see what God's doing either. That's why you got to trust in obedience. So in verse 20, I want to read the New Living Translation just because I felt like it gave it a little bit um, uh, maybe easier to understand. Verse 20 says this. It says, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our close relatives, one of our family redeemers. Sometimes God's going to call you to things that you don't understand, right? This is the same lady that earlier in, the, in Ruth is talking about, woe is me, call me Mara, don't call me Naomi because God has been so bad to me. God has, you know, come down upon me. God has afflicted me. Woe is me. This is the same lady that we see a chapter before basically telling everybody, I'm, basically, I'm a leper, stay away. God, God hates me and it might rub off on you. But in this verse, we see how she steps into God's plan. Sometimes God, you know, God doesn't always expect you to understand and know it, but Naomi was still obedient. She didn't know what was going to come out of it, but she continued to be obedient. She continued to be obedient in how she led Ruth and telling her what to do. And then in this, this verse, she comes to the realization that, you know what, God hasn't left me. God hasn't left me. God is still with me, and he is blessing me. It's kind of interesting in the text, it says that Ruth happened 
to be in Boaz's field, but we all know it wasn't happened. Just like you didn't just happen to be here this morning. God has a plan, and God was working that plan. Even Naomi could not see what that plan was. And so the the third point is this, is obedience provides protection. So in verse uh, 21 and 22, it says this, it says, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Obedience provides protection. Because when we are obedient to the things of God and stay within the parameters that he sets up, we see the abundant life that he talks about throughout Scripture. But when we decide to be disobedient and we decide to step out from under the cover that God gives us, then what what happens? Then we're subject to the assault, right? In some uh, translations, that word assault is is raped, all right? So understanding that she's still a foreigner, right, in a land where people don't like her, right, from a low family status because her mother-in-law has no husband. They are at the lowest of the low, and even from that, she's even lower because she's a foreigner. But look what God does. He puts her in a field under Boaz. Boaz comes alongside her, and he says, I got you, I will protect you. I've told all of my servants to leave you alone. We're going to continue to bless you. Stay here in this field because I can provide safety and security for you. But what would happen if she would have stepped out? What would happen if she didn't listen and be obedient? What if she would have done on her own? She would have been subject to whatever happens in those other fields. So it's understanding that obedience provides protection. God understands the situation better than we do. If you haven't learned that by now, you'll learn that pretty quick as a a believer, that God understands it way better than we do, way better than I do. He knew she was a foreigner. He knew she was vulnerable. So I was a youth pastor for a while, and um, as a youth pastor, especially with with, uh, high schoolers, it always comes up the, the, the sex talk, right, about talking about sex and what's God's design for that and why. Because teenagers have this mindset, probably a lot based on culture, that God sets up these things because he doesn't want us to have any fun, right? That God is just this God who wants do's and don'ts and check off a list, and he just doesn't want us to have any fun. He never lets us do anything that's fun in the world. And I constantly was explaining to them and helping them understand, no, God designs things with a specific parameter in mind. Why does he want Sex to only happen within a marriage between a husband. And why is that important? Because we see when you step outside of that realm, what happens, right? One of the, mo- one of the number one um, causes for uh, poverty is, is kids out of wedlock. We see what happens within the family structure, right? I understand as a parent now that my sons, even though they're boys, they need stuff from me, but they need stuff from my wife. Right? It's a family structure and it has to happen within there. Now, does it mean that God can't work outside of that? That's not what I'm saying. But God created it in a way, right, that it would work. And what do we do as humans? We constantly step outside of that. We constantly step over here because we think we know what we're doing. We, we can do better than God. God must not know. God just doesn't love us. God just doesn't care. God this, God that. No, God offers protection. And when we step out of that protection, 
and step out of that covering, right, we can be subject to things. So I understand it, and I don't, if, if, if you've been in that situation where it's happened to you outside of that, I'm not, I'm not saying condemn you, right? I have family members that that's happened to. God still works in that. But the family members that have had to deal with that, they've had to work a little bit harder to get back on track because it's, it's just a harder situation. God has a plan. He has a design. And when we follow that design and we're obedient to it, we see the abundant life that he's talking about. When we step outside of that, we understand that things are harder. And it doesn't just have to be that situation. There's been plenty of other situations in my life where I've tried to walk away from God and not do what he's called me to do. And I got to take the long way around. And it's hard and it stinks and I have to learn a lot of lessons on the way. But because he loves us and he's such a great father, he still teaches us through our mistakes, through our disobedience, to bring us back to a point where we obey him. And so the fourth point I want to make this morning is this, is that obedience requires an immediate response. 23, it says, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She did exactly what she was instructed. Boaz gave her those instructions. Naomi reinforced those instructions. And then what does she do? Immediately, she goes out and does exactly what they say to do. Ruth was given the advice, and she followed it. Matthew 4, 19, uh, one of my favorite, just one of my favorite verses, 4, 19 and 20. So 4, 19, uh, Jesus gathering his disciples, it says this, it says, Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. That's the T-shirt verse. That's the bumper sticker. That's the ha- everything, you know, Matthew 4, 19. And it's a great verse, but let's not forget Matthew 4.20, because it says this, and they left their nets at once and followed him. Church, understand that just because you get the word and it's put out there doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere. They dropped their nets at once and they followed him. And how many times do we not do that when God calls us to do something? He gives us a vision. He tells us what to do. And instead of dropping our nets immediately, we take a step back and say, I don't know about that, God. What about this, 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 and this? Because we're really good at coming up with all the reasons why not to do something and not really good at stepping into obedience and just doing it because God. Because all the excuses you can come up with cannot match the Savior of this world. So earlier this, I guess it was last week, I was having a conversation with my wife. And um, sometimes she starts a conversation by saying, hey, um, just kind of stick with me on this. I, wanna, I need to tell you something. That can go in a hundred different directions. If you're not married or you don't have a boyfriend, like it could go, I'm thinking like, did I do something wrong? Did I not for, what did I forget not to do? Like my head's racing, right? So I'm in uh, a church planning uh, school, I guess you could say, with family church. And so working through that process, learning how to plan a church, that's why we feel like God called us down here. And she was like, what if... What if God is calling you to plan a church that's completely online? And immediately I looked at her and I'm like, but what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? How are you going to baptize people? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? Because I've grown up in the church building, right, 
structure my whole life. We're so good at knocking out everything that could be wrong with it that sometimes we forget to just sit in and be like, man, I'm not saying that's where we're going. I'm just saying that's what came up. And then that night in my class, it came up as well. Like, what would that look like, right? But sometimes we got to get to the point where we understand sometimes God's going to call you to something that's completely crazy, that is completely off the wall, that doesn't make any sense, right? And nobody's going to back you on it. But you know what? God called you to it. And you have the decision to make of whether you're going to obey or not. You ever had somebody in your life that you give advice to over and over and over again, they come to you advice, they're asking for advice, and then you just watch them go out and not do any of it? Yeah, it's called parenting. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, right? It's frustrating. It's frustrating to watch that and then watch them mess up. But isn't that how God looks at us so many times? He's given us advice. He's given us instruction. He's told us what to do. And then he watches us go and do the exact opposite. So I want to share a little story about the greatest moment in my um, football career. Okay, it was 10th grade. And uh, I got moved up to varsity the beginning, like before the season even started, which is a big deal, especially in our area. Like football was really big. And, and so um, I'm really excited about that and I'm ready to go. So we go to camp before, before uh, summer practice starts. Last day of camp, I break my nose. Get elbowed right in the face, break my nose. Um, because we were doing a drill with no, we didn't wear pads. We were just doing a drill, just like a walkthrough anyway. And so I only had a couple days between uh, when I got home from camp and when practice started. Um, and so uh, not much time to heal. So the first couple days of practice, my nose would not stop bleeding. And so, like, I kept trying to hide from the coaches because I knew if they saw my nose bleeding, they were going to pull me out and make me sit out. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to get behind. So, but they did, and I had to sit back. And so, finally got through the nosebleeds and working hard at practice. I've worked my way up. I'm starting on the defensive line. And um, it was a play. It was the last play right before we broke uh, for lunch. And the running back comes through the hole, and he trips and falls, and his head goes right into my knee. And my knee bends the wrong way. My kneecap comes out of place. And I'm just on the ground screaming like it was, it was painful. And so it was probably more painful that I knew that this was going to set me back even further um, in that. So anyway, uh, it was about halfway through the season. I had gone through physical therapy. I'd gotten my strength up. Got, finally was able to get back on the field. And my coach says, hey, you're going to have to play JV until – we feel like you're ready to come back up to varsity. I'm like, okay. So I practiced all week with the varsity, and then I'd go down. I'd, I'd play for the, for the JV game at the end of the week. And so it was my first game playing, and before I go into the game, the coach is like, I know we haven't had time to go over, you know, all the plans and everything, all the strategy for this team, but I just want you to remember one thing, just one thing. It's one play that I want you to look for. And so uh, – if you don't know football, you're probably going to tune me out for a little bit, but that's okay. Um, in football, you have linemen on the offense and on the defense. The offense are the ones that have the ball. They're trying to score. The defense is the one that's trying to keep them from scoring. Okay, I played on the defensive side. He was like, they like to run this one screen play. And so basically what it is, normally on defense, you're, you're just trying to get to the ball. 
on offense, if it's a run play, the offensive lineman is going to come at you because they're trying to push you as far downfield to make as much room for the running back as possible. It's a pass play. They're probably going to take one step back, and they're going to block you and try to hold you from getting to the quarterback. So it's very distinct when you know if it's pass or run. But on this play, they're trying to trick you as a defense. So they're going to act like they're going to block you, and then they let you go only a couple seconds into the play because they all run downfield. It's a quick pass to the running back, and you've got these big, huge 300-pound linemen running downfield blocking for everybody. So, all right, those of you that tuned me out from all that, come back in because you'll, you'll understand the story better now. So it was about the third quarter, and I'm – I'm lined up to block, and I go and I run at the, the offensive lineman, and he resists me for just a couple seconds, then he just lets me go. Now, as a defensive player, you just want to get to the ball. You just want to get to the ball and hit whoever has the ball. So your instincts is to just run. Well, as soon as he left me, I go to run for the quarterback, and then boom, it hits me. Coach just told me about this play, right? And so instead of running after the quarterback, I take a step back, I see the running back coming across the field. Quarterback doesn't see me. He throws the ball up. It's like a big donut for a, for a lineman just coming at you. It's like slow motion, right? Everything in the world stopped, right? And the ball is just floating at me. And so I step in front of the running back. I catch the ball. 40 yards down the sideline, touchdown. But there was a flag on the play. No, I'm just kidding. It, touchdown, right? Like, you don't have to tell me anything. That, that, for me, I went home that night. I felt like the greatest football player alive. But if I would have not listened to my coach and immediately responded, who knows what that play would have been. So it's understanding that obedience requires an immediate response. So in closing... I feel like obedience is the answer to a lot of questions, a lot of questions I've heard in my ministry career, but just a lot of questions I've heard overall. How do I follow God? Obedience. How do I hear from God? Obedience. How do I know what to do? Obedience. How do I see God? Obedience. How do I know God is there? Obedience. How do I get my life back on track? Obedience. How do I grow in my faith? Obedience. First Samuel fifteen twenty two says this. It says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. Obedience. Right? Jeremy just talked, gave you a whole message about us being generous with what God's given us. Now it's obedience to it. How many times do we hear a great message on a Sunday morning and we walk out, there's no obedience? Man, that message was so good. Man, I was so convicted. And then we walk out the door and nothing. The beauty of obedience is watching this story unfold. From Naomi being obedient, going back, right, from Moab to watching Ruth's obedience in the field, to watching Boaz's obedience on how he protects her and then watching them come together and then boom, what comes out of that? Jesus. So you have no idea what your obedience will bring. Not only on your own life, but for those around you and those you're going to come in contact with. It's not just about us. It's about living in obedience to then have an impact on the world around us.
And so for this week, I want you to really think through this, all right? It's called an I will statement. An I will statement takes a message or something that you heard, and now it puts legs to it so that you actually do something with it, right? So I want you to think about an I will statement for obedience, for generosity, right? I will what? Right? Because I know in my own life, even working through this message this week, God has challenged me on my own obedience. God, I will obey you in this area of my life because you continue to bring it before me and I continue to be disobedient. In it. Whatever it is, God, I will, this week I will be generous to my neighbor who's in a bad financial spot. I will be generous to the homeless person that I pass every single day, but I've refused to to engage in a conversation or to to help with. I don't know what that is for you, but I want to challenge you before you leave today to have some sort of I will statement so that this week you can be purposeful about generosity and obedience. So as the the worship team comes up and uh, the prayer partners come up, however God wants to deal with you in this, we just talked about obedience. So if God is talking to you something right now and you just stay in your chair, that's not being obedient. It's immediate, right? We have people up here that will pray for you, that will talk with you through that. Um, you can be that time just in worship to meditate on it, whatever it is. Maybe um, the communion table is for you today and um, just asking God to forgive you and cleanse you, whatever it is. Just be obedient in this time. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. And God, you truly want what's best for us. You truly want us to live an abundant life. God, you have called us into your family. You have adopted us into your family. We are children of the king. Those of us who love you and are called according to you, God, we we are children of the king. God, may we be obedient and walk in obedience to you, God, because there are so many things you want to do in our lives, God, so many places you want to take us, God. Help us to not look at all the situations that can keep us from doing it, God, but help us to lean into the one that makes the most sense, and that's you. And know that you will take care of us, you will protect us, you have our back, God, and you will walk us through it because you have incredible plans in store for us. We see it throughout your word, Father. So, God, whatever it is you're calling us to right now, may we be obedient in it, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com.